Thank you all for worshiping, giving, and uh, being here today. If you have a Bible, we're going to be opening up to three different places today. We don't normally jump around that much, but we'll kind of be going in sequence so we won't be flipping back and forth too, too much. Uh, if you want to open up first to Daniel chapter 7, that's probably the trickiest one to find. It's kind of tucked away toward the end of the Old Testament. Daniel 7, and then later on we'll be flipping over to John 14 and Romans 8. So those are close together. Uh, if you want to put a bookmark in John 14, we'll turn there in a little bit. Uh, just, I wanted this to be right in front of us today. I didn't want to be looking at the screen and, and trying to decide which was more important to focus on. So we'll be uh, flipping to John 14 and Romans 8 in just a little bit. Uh, we'll begin in Daniel 7 in just a minute. Uh, but our worship today uh, has been so rich and encouraging in the reminders of the names of God. We, we just sing, Jesus is our way maker. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the door to life. Uh, and he makes a way. Uh, his name reminds us that uh, he is uh, the way to God. Uh, you know, a, a verse that I've been thinking about a lot this week, uh, Proverbs 18, verse number 10. Uh, the writer says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs unto it and is safe. That tells us that God's name, not just God himself, of course, God is a strong tower, but the name of God is a strong tower. His name carries the uniqueness and the distinct promise of his power. When we hear the name of the Lord, his name evokes salvation, hope, and peace. Uh, we were, were actually going to sing a thousand names last week, but it worked out that we, it kind of went along with our worship today. Uh, but just some of the names that we've lifted up uh, across our song today um, that God goes by. He is the rock of ages. He's the great I am. He is the eternal king. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the risen lamb. And, and, and again, we, we just sing that he's the promise keeper, the light of the world. And maybe you've never asked this question before, but it's worth thinking about. Why does the Bible ascribe so many names to God? Why isn't God just enough of a name or the Lord or, of course, Jesus? Uh, why does the Bible ascribe so many names? If you go through the Old Testament, it's like every other page is a new title for God. The New Testament picks up on that and adds to that. Jesus referred to himself in, as, as so many different things. I am the bread. I am the light. I am the way. Why does the Bible ascribe so many names to God. I mean, you know, of course we know that Christianity is the one and only way, but if you compare it to other religions, you know, their religions just have one single name. It's just like, it's so simple and so plain, but, but why is Christianity? Why does our faith, why do we believe that uh, our God has so many and is worthy of so many different titles? And, and I think the best way to answer that is that the writers of scripture just could not find enough words to describe in full the splendor and the glory of our God that they could not just use a title for God because there was so much splendor and glory that they felt there were other names, other titles that uh, were deserving. And, and, and one messenger would use this name, another messenger would use that. Uh, one songwriter would lift up God with a name and a prophet would use something different. And if you read the Old Testament from the narratives to the prophets to the Psalms, you, you see there are so many different names. For God, and, and there was no limit to the names and, uh, to, that, that capture the fullness of God, every side, every angle. So the Holy Spirit kept inspiring more and more in the hearts and minds of those that were writing the scriptures and, and that would testify to the encounter those individuals had and the experience they had and that could be had with God. Uh, there is one name though, 
that is mentioned only one place in scripture that we haven't sang about and, and you probably haven't heard about a lot or you probably don't think about a lot. I think I can think of one song that's pretty obscure that, that uses this title for God that you probably haven't heard. Uh, but uh, I bet of all the names of God, uh, this might be the one you're the most unfamiliar with. And it happens to be featured in our opening text, which I'll explain why we're looking at this particular text in just a minute. But just to get started, I wanna look at Daniel chapter seven. Uh, one of the more obscure chapters of Daniel, we're probably familiar with Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel uh, in Nebuchadnezzar or the, four, uh, the three Hebrews in the fire. Uh, this is Daniel uh, who is having some sleepless nights. He's having a lot of dreams. He's seeing a lot of visions. And this vision, it, it, it's underrated and it's underpreached, but it's really amazing. Daniel tells us in chapter seven, verse nine through 12, I watched till thrones were put in place. So he's seeing the world, he's seeing the times and all the different kingdoms that are rising up and falling. And, and then he sees a finale, he sees an ending. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment, so ancient of days, a name for this man. His, na his garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels, a burning fire, a fiery steam issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then before of this, uh, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This is a passage, I just rub my hands together when I read it. I'm thinking, man, there's so much here. There's so much uh, to, to, get a, to get to grab a hold of. But, but, but let's just start with the name, Ancient of Days. Isn't that a cool name? Isn't that maybe one of the coolest names for God? Uh, and, and again, you've probably never heard that before. I'm sure you've read this before, but maybe you've never heard it or thought about it. Uh, what's the significance of this name. Uh, we know what light of the world means. We know what the bread of life means. We know what, what I am and, and what king and lion and lamb means. But what does ancient of days mean? And why does Daniel use it first and only in the scriptures? Well, here's my understanding. Daniel is writing during the time of the exile of the Jewish people. They have been taken from Israel. Israel's pretty much destroyed. Uh, they have been taken as captives in Babylon. And then while he's in captivity in Babylon, Persia comes and conquers Babylon. And then Persia has the Jews in captivity. And this is over 120, 130 year time period that they are pretty much slaves in a foreign land. The world, and if you study world history, and if you read the book of Daniel, it gives you insight to it. The world was so so unstable, maybe the most unstable it's ever been at this point in history, at this stage in time. Uh, this was during the era of empires. As a new one was rising and conquering, it seemed every so many decades, there was a new conquering king, a new empire, and somebody else was taking turns ruling the world. Uh, and for hundreds of years, the world was super volatile as a result of all these empires vying for power. 
If you weren't one of the three or four major concentrations of power, your land was going to be trodden over and passed along and passed to, to, to another uh, for years and years to come. Uh, that was the case for Israel. Uh, under Assyria, under Babylon, under Persia, soon after under Greece, under Rome. It, it was like, who wants to be king next? It was just this revolving doors of foreign powers that were trampling up and down the land from Galilee to Judea, uh, all the kingdoms uh, of the world would have a turn at ruling over the Jewish people, ruling over Israel. And, and after Rome, uh, the empire fell, even the nations that came after them that resulted in our modern world, they kind of took turns ruling over this land. Uh, Daniel, in Daniel's day, Daniel was one of the Jews that were taken captive. He was the son of Judah. Uh, he was actually taken into captivity um, and brought into the courts of Babylon. He was assimilated into Babylonian courts. He was tested, he was examined, and it turned out he was a bright man. He was a brilliant uh, uh, student. He, he proved himself to be a, a, a kind of a savvy uh, diplomat. So Daniel was taken from the captivity to the courts of Babylon. He was given a new name, he was taught a new language, and he was given new gods to worship, but they changed his name, they changed his language, but they could not change his faith. And Daniel's heart for God grew and grew. He knew the one true God, Yahweh, and he believed that even though Israel had lost, even though Babylon and Persia and all the other empires and their gods were ruling, Daniel believed that Yahweh was really in control and that ultimately it would prove that Yahweh was pulling the strings and setting the stage for something better to come. And lo and behold, God uses Daniel to show the Babylonians and show the Persians and show the rest of the world through his record that indeed Yahweh is sovereign over the kingdoms of man. Daniel saw visions of kingdoms rising and falling, but over all of them, the Lord ruled and reigned. The tumultuous downfall of Babylon, the rise of Persia, sent chills up every citizen's spine because once again and again, Daniel was proven right and the Jewish God seemed to be in control over it all. Some of Daniel's words remain so powerful that they are so sobering. When we read them all these years later, they are sobering and they really wake us up to what actually is going on behind the scenes. Daniel wrote this in chapter two. He speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, the king of kings, you think you're the king of kings? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, do you not know that God of heaven has given you this kingdom? Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I took it. I earned it. I fought for it. I killed the last guy to get it. I have the power and the might and the glory. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, how unfortunate it is that you don't see the bigger picture. You build a tower in honor of yourself. You build an image of gold that honors you. Do you not know, O king of kings, that the God of heaven has given you this kingdom? And one day, one day, another kingdom inferior to you. And, and, and Daniel says, I know you think you're the most powerful man in the world. And let me just give you the insight. The kingdom that comes next, it's gonna be weaker and smaller and poorer, but God is gonna take it from you and give it to him, to the Persian king. And, and, and even if the Persian king thinks he's the guy that has all the power and the glory and might, another kingdom is gonna take it from him. And that was Greece. Daniel says, O king of kings, do you not know that God of heaven has given it to you? And one day he will take it back and give it to another. 
Daniel said this in chapter four because Nebuchadnezzar just couldn't figure it out. He, he, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that there was a decree by the watchers and, and that's just angels, but you know, people ask me what do watchers do? They just watch. So the watchers, right? That's pretty simple interpretation, right? The watchers gave a decision from the holy ones that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives it and gives them to whomever he wills. And usually the people that he puts in charge are the lowliest. You say, well, I, you know, the guy I voted for was not lowly, well, in your opinion. The lowliest of men. They may look strong to us. They may seem charismatic to us, but in God's presence, they're lowly. God raises up and God lowers, God gives and God takes. And, and, and he says this in, chapter, in verse 35. He does according to his will among the host of heavens, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. And, and think about how just silly it would be to do this, but we do this in our rhetoric. Nobody can say, whoa, whoa, God. Have you ever, somebody reached for something, you push their hand, put your hand there and say, no, you can't take that. Or, oh, you shouldn't touch that because, hey, you don't know what I know. You do this to your kids, right? You do this to somebody that comes over to your house and they go to touch something. You think, whoa, 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 you don't realize what you're doing. And we do this to God, don't we? God is moving his hand and we say, whoa, whoa, God, you can't do that. That's mine or this is my plan and your plan is Nobody can stay the hand of God and say, what are you doing or what have you done? Yet we do, don't we? We do. As volatile and as vulnerable as this world is, Daniel made it clear, our God reigns over it all and through it all. That's the basis for the name that Daniel gives us in chapter seven, ancient of days. You know what's significant about that? It causes us to think back to the days before we were here the days before there were the kingdoms of man, the days before the earth looks like it does now, before there were planets and galaxies and the universe as, it, as we know it, before years and months and days and hours, before minutes or seconds, there was a God, one and only God. Yahweh is his name. He came to earth as Jesus, Yahweh's son, but Daniel calls him the ancient of days. And you know what I think this does to our hearts, as vulnerable as they are, as unsettled as they are, as scared as they are, as worried as they are? Ancient of days, I think, has a powerful message behind it. That if the days behind you haunt you, if the days at hand frustrate you, if the days to come worry you and trouble you, look up and trust in the ancient of days because the days behind you and in front of you and around you, they may be frustrating and scary and troubling, but there is one who rules who is the ancient of days. He is the I am. He has always been and always will be. And he has the world in his hands. Amen. So our God is the ancient of days. That before there was ever anything that we so concentrate on, God was. And that same God is, and that same God will always be. So Daniel gets a vision of the far-flung future. He sees all the kingdoms, if you read chapter seven in its entirety, he sees all the kingdoms of the world passing away. He sees Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. He sees Rome splitting up and he sees thousands of years of the Roman Empire kind of splintering off and different nations rising up. And of course, our nation's a result of that. We came from Europe. We came from a remnant. 
He sees all the world transpiring and he doesn't give us a chart. And I know people like to do this and try to, profit, try to timeline it all out. Daniel doesn't give us that. And we probably shouldn't do that with this information. He just wants us to know how it's going to end. That he sees everything going as we have lived it. And he sees the end. When's the end coming? We don't know, but he sees the end. And he sees a throne rising up out of the ashes. He sees a forever throne and he sees a final king taking a seat on the throne. And it's the one who has always been sovereign over the earth. The ancient of days, the one who started this, sits down on the throne that other people thought was theirs, but it wasn't. In this vision, the Lord takes a throne after a victory over the beast. Now we, love, we hear about beast and we, our eyes get big and we think about the 90s and left behind books and that's a trip that we're not gonna go on today. But we hear the word beast and we think, what does that mean? The beast in the Bible is, is, a, word, is, a, is a name used for the devil, the ruler of this age, Satan. The beast is a, a description of the world, the kingdoms of man that act like beasts. And you know what beasts do? They rip things apart. They tear things down. They eat each other. Right? That's what beasts do. And the kingdoms of the world are described, not by me, but by God and by the word, as beastly, as primal, as brutal, as ruthless. You think, well, no wonder the world's like it is, of course, right? Because it's ran by beasts. And the beast that's giving all the power to all the little beasts that the verses talk about is the devil, is Satan, the God of this world. And here's what Daniel sees. The beast gives power to earthly kingdoms for a season to enact his will, to do whatever it takes to destroy the kingdom of God and to destroy the people of God. And he works relentlessly to do this church. Y'all don't need me to tell you this after all this has went on, but he has worked tirelessly to do this. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. His ways, his tactics are twofold. He lures our faith away. He gives you something else to put faith in. He distracts you, he deceives you, he tempts you. Oh, I should put my faith in that. I don't need to follow God. I've got something else to follow. He lures us away and he shatters our faith. He tries to devastate us and calls us to give up. Some he tempts, some he traps, some he uh, deceives, some he discourages, but nonetheless, he is a pro at it. We fall for his delusions so easily, but we shouldn't because Jesus defeated the beast. He defeated him on the cross. We no longer have to serve the beast out of fear or out of lust because we no, long, we no longer have to cling to the promises of this world uh, or what the politicians of the world promise us or a kingdom affords us because we know that the beast is not our savior. The beast is not our friend. The beast is not forever and the beast has been defeated. We have, a sal we have salvation in Christ alone. There is no beast that has your best interest in mind. We may get pretty comfortable, and this is why it's hard for Americans to talk about this, because we get pretty comfortable in our beast. And we've glamorized it up, and we've made it look pretty godly. But every kingdom of this world, if you strip away all the pageantry and all the dressing, it's just a beast. And it does not have our best in mind. 
We're lured away. We're shattered when devastation happens. But Jesus says to us, the beast has been defeated. You don't need to lean on the beast for your salvation because I alone give you what you're looking for. Now the text says that the rest of the beast, notice it says there, that I watched till the beast was slain, verse 11. It's body destroyed, given to the burning flame. So that's Jesus defeated the devil on the cross that we no longer are bound in captivity to sin and death. He no longer rules over us. The kingdoms of this world are no longer our best option to put our faith in. But then he says, as for the rest of the beast, the little beast, if you could capitalize this, that'd be a big beast in verse 11. In verse 12, it's the little guys. It's the ones that are in place to do the bidding of the bigger beast. The text says the rest of the beasts are left for a season, for a short while. The smaller kingdoms like Rome in the days of Jesus, like every nation in the days at hand, these beasts persist and they plot along. And, but we know, we know who is the one and only king of all. We know who sits on the throne the ancient of days. We may think that somebody else is in control, but truly above all of it, the ancient of days, Jesus Christ, Yahweh in flesh and blood is seated on heaven's throne. Salvation belongs to him. Our praise and worship must only go to him. Our trust and confidence must rest in him. The other beasts, they remain so that we might make a statement each day, choose Jesus as our one and only king. Why is the world in the state that it's in? Why has God left things in the motion that it's in? So that you and I might make a choice each day that Jesus, nobody else, is our king. As the season and time of beast linger, the church is here to proclaim that there is a day coming soon and very soon that the clouds will roll back. The world's and its power and possessions will pass away and rising above and over everything will be a kingdom that has no end. With a king that has, that is the beginning and the end. Look at verse 13 and 14. I was watching the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. I mean, pretty obvious who Daniel's talking about. He didn't know who he was talking about because he hadn't, Jesus hadn't come yet. He sees a vision of the future. One like the son of man. He came to the ancient of days or he is the ancient of days in flesh. He is the vision or the image of or the presentation of the ancient of days. They brought him near to him. Notice both hymns are capitalized because this is a, a picture of the father, the son. This is Jesus rising up to take a throne in heaven. To him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That means that every other one will be. This is our hope, church. This is our promise. This is our future. This is our inheritance. So in light of all that we've dealt with last couple of years, last week, in light of all that we deal with on a daily basis, personally and privately. I think this should warm our hearts. And, and that's hard to do that, right? We hear this and we just immediately light up with hope and faith and confidence that God has a plan and that God's in control. But it also informs our lives because until the Lord wraps all this up, we are still here with a purpose 
in light of what this weekend means for our country, this should put all this in perspective. The vision Daniel sees, and here's what we're talking about this today for. The vision that Daniel sees correlates with what the church celebrates on this particular Sunday every year. That 40 days after Easter, which would have been Thursday, Friday, 40 days after Easter is what we call the ascension or it is the ascension of Jesus. So we know that Jesus uh, stayed on earth for 39 days preparing the disciples for the church age. But on that 40th day, Jesus ascended and took a seat on heaven's throne. We don't talk about this enough, right? We talk about the resurrection. Of course, that's the moment that he defeated sin and gave us salvation and, and sent his power to us. But the ascension of Jesus should get a little bit more airtime, I think. That he rose from the dead and then he ascended from the earth to a throne in heaven. And in heaven, where there was no flesh up until this point, there was no peep, there was no matter as we see it. A human being, flesh and blood, took a seat on God's throne that would have been unbelievable for the angels to see and it says the angels couldn't believe it but here's the thing about the ascension because we think about Jesus leaving we think that's bad the ascension is not a reminder that Jesus has departed the earth but that he has initiated a new age on the earth of which we are a part of He's overseen a new era where people choose to worship him and live for him and prepare for his return where we realize the beast has been slain and the king has taken his seat. One day he will return. With his return, heaven and earth will merge. The beast of this world will be put to rest once and for all. Evil will be judged. Justice will be served. All things will be made new. And down in verse 25, listen to how Daniel sees it playing out across generations as the world waits for redemption. Verse 25 to 27. He shall speak pompous words, and he's talking about the beast again. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws, as in say, well, that's not how it is anymore, or that isn't relevant anymore, or that's not true anymore. We've seen that, haven't we? He shall attempt to, intend to, as in he thinks it's possible, but God's word is forever. He intends to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hands for a time, a time, and times a half. And he talks about the suffering the people of God face as we try to break out of this world and its systems and its ways. 26, but the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people, the saints of the most high. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. All dominion shall serve and obey him. But right now, right now, we are living in between verse 14 and verse 25. He, Jesus has taken his seat. He is on the throne. But the little beasts are still running to and fro. And we as the people of God are still in that tension, waiting, wondering, what's our next move? As we live and as we wait for the promise to be fulfilled, I think the ascension does a couple things for us. Looking back on Jesus' ascension and looking up on his, at his throne should both encourage us and embolden us. First off, this is something that we have to be honest about. We live in a world in waiting. His throne is in heaven, not yet here on earth. So we must understand that things are not as they should be and will be on earth. 
Some may find the not yet to be discouraging, but I think it's encouraging because in spite of how the distance between heaven and earth seem to be widening, truth is as we get closer to the consummation of all things, the distance is growing thinner and thinner. In the tension we feel, in the trials we face, in the terror that persists and even heightens is the result of the beasts of this world panicking as their days are numbered. So we are encouraged by the throne above us that promises us that one day, not yet, will be now here. One day, not yet, will become now here. One day the distance will be erased. One day the tension will break. The trials will end. The troubles will go away. No more terror, no more fear. But until then, we wait. And while we wait, we are emboldened and we are empowered. And and, and here's what we need to hear today, maybe more than anything. Jesus' ascension is the ultimate reminder that he is not limited by the earth's weakness. The earth is weak morally and politically and structurally. The, The earth, we as creatures are weak mentally and physically, emotionally. We are taken in all sorts of directions. We cannot handle the pressure of this world. But the good news is our king and his throne is not dependent on this world and its temperate moods. And that should give us confidence. Confidence that he is not held back by what holds back us and what tempts us. And there is a pathway to endure and overcome for us. And the pathway was paved, of course, by Jesus himself. The last week of Jesus's life, he gathered his disciples into a private upper room, an upper loft in Jerusalem. He prepared them for the next phase of their mission, which would really be enacted after he ascended and after he took that heavenly throne is when he would begin to send them and commission them. His position on heaven's throne was meant to position and empower them and us in their, in our earthly purpose. In fact, and maybe you've never really heard this before or heard this preached before, Ephesians tells us this. By grace, you have been saved and raised us. We've been raised up with him and we've been seated with him. When last I checked, I'm here with you. But spiritually, We are seated with him on heaven's throne, as in we know what our reality really is. And yes, we see things that distract us and deceive us and tempt us and trouble us. Yes, we see things that may drift us and and, and try to show us that there's other things going on and try to get more present in our realities. But our true reality and our true state is that we are seated with him in heavenly places. And church, if we can ever break out of this little temporal mindset that we have and see this as our place and as our reality, you and I can find that encouragement and find that boldness. He is continuing his earthly activity. So he, we are in him, he is in us. And he is continuing his earthly activity through us. Flip over to John 14 as we wrap up. John 14, verse 12 through 14, Jesus says this to the disciples. He promises them or he gives them this promise. 
He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Not I will do it for you, but I will do it in you and through you. Now, let me make clear what this is talking about. Nothing is ever gonna be greater than Jesus dying and raising again. You and I are not Jesus. We're not gonna do something that rivals what he did. Greater refers to scope and scale as in there are more of us, right? There are many of us. There's one of him. He multiplies his power through the disciples. So what did Jesus do on earth? So he says greater than I did. What did Jesus do? He proclaimed and put in place kingdom ideals. He brought heaven to earth. His ascension gives us a promise to cling to and a power to live by. He says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And when it gets difficult to keep my commandments, ask me and I'll make sure you can keep them. Ask me and I'll do it through you and for you and in you. Now, now what are Jesus' commandments? I know the whole Bible is God's word, but Jesus specifically talked about things that he commanded his followers to do. And just a little bit of a a, a recap of it. He said, follow me, do unto others as he has done for us. Love one another, seek first the kingdom. That's a short version of what he said to do, what his commandments are. So if we love Jesus, we'll be like Jesus and we will live for Jesus. We will call on his name and ask to live for him and that he would live through us. So in a week like this one, when we've been reminded of our world's fragile and fallen nature, Jesus' ascension points us to his throne and he says greater things. I know it feels like there's nothing greater that can be done because of all the bad. He says, look at me. This is still true. I'm not taking you out yet. One day, one day, but hey, until that day comes, this is true for you. This is your priority. This is your calling. So his sovereignty should give us security and stability while we wait, while we wait. On this Memorial Day, we're reminded that freedoms and values that we uphold and cherish are not worldwide norms and have been opposed throughout history by many more primal beastly kingdoms. We remember that there are many that gave their lives so that we can live our lives and we can have the opportunity we have the lives we have built on freedom, equality, and equity, uh, that we might continue to better others' lives and point people to the God that has inspired this American system. In the shadow of the horrific deaths in Texas and the heinous years-long cover-up in some of our sister churches of abuse, Jesus' ascension and heavenly throne should fill us with hope. Even though our earthly freedoms and pleasures are fleeting, even though our earthly institutions and systems, they fail us, even though there are conflicts and suffering and oppression, ultimately our hope is in our King who sits on heaven's forever throne. And we should be driven by this hope to do whatever we can to make Jesus more known, showcase what life can be like when he is at the center of it all. That's how greater things can be done. That's how we obey his commandments by allowing our future to influence the present, by honoring our exalted king in all that we do. Does life get disheartening? Of course. Does life get overwhelming? Absolutely. 
But this week we stand in the shadow of very specific people and groups of people that don't allow us to say, I don't wanna think about what my responsibility is. We can't avoid that accountability today because we stand in the shadow of people for whom life didn't just get disheartening, but it brought them devastation, disaster, and death. The ones that, and the ones that didn't take their lives, it took something from them that they not never get back. We stand in the shadow of the fallen, the taken, and the survivors. In this country, we stand on the shoulders of men and women who gave their lives up defending us, not so we could have a holiday tomorrow, but so that we might have democracy and freedom and individual opportunity that the rest of the world doesn't know about. This week, we've been reminded that even our great country isn't without its own primal and beastly instincts. We've been reminded that systems built to protect people have gaps in them and flaws in them. This weekend, we remember the greatest generation who were selfless and sacrificial, yet we've been reminded that our generation knows little of selflessness and sacrifice. In the immediate aftermath of a tragedy, we all descend into arguing over who's more right instead of falling on our faces in tears, praying for God to make us all righteous. Everyone has a solution. And believe me, there are many areas that need to be addressed, but only God has the answer. And only God has the power to make a difference. What protects us and preserves us is not our ability to control our lives or other people's lives, who can possess and who can do this, but, if, but also if we think that what matters most is our ability to save ourselves, then we're just as lost. Our world, our generation is saddled and burdened with minds that are not meant to not meant and prepared for the pressure and the influence of this evil age. We are mentally strung out. The power of the beast looms large over us, manipulating us, making us into a monster that would do something atrocious. From the man that took those kids' lives to the ministers that took people's innocence, nobody's above the beastly pathway. Those lives that were taken and those that had something taken from them, the survivors of those that were killed and the survive, those surviving with scars, they look at us and they say, what are you gonna do with the life that you still have that we don't have anymore? What are you gonna do with the opportunity that you have that others don't, that others died for you to have? Those that gave up their lives for our freedoms, those that had their lives taken and scarred in spite of the freedom they presumed would protect them but didn't. They all stare at us and they ask us, what are you going to do next? If we didn't have a king in heaven, I don't know what we would do next. But because we have a king in heaven, we know what we should do next. As our world aches and groans, as the sufferings of this present time persist, here's what Romans says as we process and try to respond to all this. And you can flip over there if you want to look for a minute. We're going to read Romans 8, 28 and 29. How we respond to things signals to the world how God can redeem things. Y'all know this verse. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, for whom he, foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We're the brethren. That what he started in Jesus, he's continuing through us. How we respond to things signals how the world can find redemption. If we respond selfishly with anger and fear, what kind of signal does that send? 
But if we respond with compassion, God, we, we show people that there's a God who cares. If we respond with confidence, people see a God who is in control. If we respond by comfort, by conforming to the image of Jesus, people will feel the power of Jesus through us. What does it mean to conform to his image? It means that we become like him and obey him and follow him. Again, what did Jesus do on this earth? He lived every day. He lived each day with goals, as bring, goals of bringing as much heaven to earth as possible. By defying the beast. As in he didn't live by the way the beast said he had to live. He didn't do what the beast said he had to do. He was above that. He rose above that. He defied the beast. He defined the kingdom's best. And he delivered the least among us. He interceded for those that couldn't help themselves. If we do everything without power to do the, within our power to do these things, we're pointing to a king. We're showing people the way and helping them get to him. Listen to how Romans fans this flame. We're gonna jump around at a couple of verses. Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? And he's referring to suffering and trials and tribulations. If God is for us, who can be against us? I don't know, Justin, there's a lot that seems to be against us, but we have our eyes on heaven's throne and greater is he who is for us than he that is against us. Look at verse 34, how, the, the last part of that verse. Who is, it, he, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is at the right hand of God, seated, right? Making intercession for us. The angels in heaven say, hey, Jesus, what do you want us to do over there on that part of the, the eternity that we haven't messed with, we haven't developed yet? Hey, I'm busy. I'm interceding for my people. Peter says, hey, Jesus, we need you to come help out and do that water to, you know, whatever thing in the, in the dining hall. I'm busy. I'm interceding for my people. The God of heaven spends his days interceding for us. 35, what shall separate us from this love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness? None of these things. In verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That line is so powerful, church. Human instinct is to fight back with the same tactics, to try to take more than what was taken from us. That's how beasts operate. Beasts fight back. Beasts take what was taken or take more. But we're different. We're more than conquerors. We're Christians. You hear that? This chapter isn't about getting your torch and pitchfork. This is to remind you that we are more than conquerors. We are Christians. We aren't here to conquer. We're here to conform. We are here to proclaim that Jesus has already conquered. He is already ruling. We aren't after earthly power. We, are at, we're, we already have heavenly power and the might of God is on our side and nothing can separate us from him. The ancient of days is our anchor in these days. These awful days, he's our anchor. Jesus ascended so that he might intercede for us and give us direct access to the power of God. We live under the power of God's love. We're driven to live in that power. And flip back to John 14 and listen to these verses. Jesus said, I will pray the Father, 16. I will pray to the Father that he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him and he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. 
So he says, hey, I'm leaving, but don't worry. I'm not abandoning you. He ascended to heaven, not to abandon us. He sent his spirit to awaken us and to activate his reign through us. Every day we can showcase what life in his kingdom can be like. The best can be the best we can now until the best finally comes later. Look at this privilege that Jesus says that we exclusively have as Christians. Verse 19, a little while longer, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. And that day you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest or make myself known to him and through him. That's what our calling is. God will make himself known to us and through us. Let me ask you, how is the Holy Spirit making a difference in you? How is the Holy Spirit making us different from the rest of the world? How is the Holy Spirit making the world different through us? We have access to life. The rest of the world doesn't. We have greater things on our possibilities. The rest of the world doesn't. God can work bad work good from bad through us. Is all of this happening through you? Are you letting the helper transform you and conform you to the image of Jesus? Are you and are we being comforted and compelled by our ascended king? Are we being encouraged and emboldened by our ascended king? Or are we living in fear? Are we living by lust? Are we still serving the beast? You know, if you watch any given news station or YouTube channel, every pundit will tell you that the answer to world peace is more control in the hands of a certain side. If we have control, we'll give you this. If we have control, we'll get rid of that. If we have control, there'll be no more of that. But if we have control, everything will be better. Maybe you don't listen to the pundits, but maybe you listen to you and you stand in front of the mirror and the other side says, if I can just get my way, I'll be set. Today reminds us that we are not in control. We will never be in control and we should never want control because there is no peace when beasts are in control. Only chaos and confusion and loss. And look up here. There is only peace when we live. And I mean live, not just pretend to a church. When we live under the reign of Jesus and when we genuinely and sincerely pray, not my will, but yours. Not my kingdom, but yours. Because to him belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The only solution for peace is when we worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is interceding for us. The Holy Spirit is constantly trying to tell us this. Down in verse 26, Jesus said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give, not as this world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You've heard me say, I am going away and coming back. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said this. I'm going to the Father for my Father is greater than I. I'm going to that throne in heaven. And now I have told you before it comes and when it does come, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. He has no power over me. Remember that. 
because I am going to a throne above this world. But that the world may know that I love the Father as the Father gave me a commandment, so I do, so I do to you. And then he closes this passage very obscurely. Arise, let us go from here. Jesus' message today is that the beasts around us have no control over us. He is our Lord, he is our King. In him is our power, in our peace, in our purpose. We must rise and go from here in his peace and power and purpose to a world waiting to hear and see and feel his reign through us. May they not hear our ideals, our wills. May they not see our kingdoms coming, but may we point them to the final King on heaven's forever throne. To punctuate this calling over us today, we're gonna end our time around the Lord's table. Taking communion is an act of worship. It's an act of remembering. Remembering what Jesus did for us in his death and remembering what Jesus is doing for us. Do you, do you think about that? He is doing something for you right now on the throne in heaven, interceding and sending to you the power of the Holy Spirit that you might live differently than the rest of the world. We remember his sacrifice allowed us to have this place, our flesh and blood may be revived and restored. His death allows, as John 14, 19 puts it, as he lives, we will live also, he in us and we in him. Paul commanded in 1 Corinthians, in the same way he took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what it means for us until he comes. We proclaim that he has ascended to a throne. He rules above and that our faith is in him and our mission is from him. Before we come to the table, I want us to take some time, a few moments to reflect on what God has put before us today and what God is wanting to do through us always. Lindsay's gonna come and play and we're gonna all bow our heads in place and let God commune with us and talk with us, prepare our hearts. We are here today with heavy hearts, praying for our world. We hurt with our world, but we know that our hope comes from heaven. So our eyes are fixed on Jesus in his throne. In this time of reflection, this time of preparation, may we receive the peace and the power and the purpose that God alone gives May we look to the heavens today, interceding for those around us, knowing and hearing that Jesus is also interceding for us. He's sending us help and he's sending us out. So for the next moment or two, pour your heart out to the Lord, your fears, your frustrations, your lust, your things of the world that you cling to and allow him to show you that he is on a throne. He is the king. He deserves our faith and our adoration. And if our faith is in him, we unlock for ourselves a tremendous new way of living. We find courage, we find boldness, we find power and peace. We find a purpose in this world. As everything tears apart around us, we see a world that can be healed by the message of Jesus and we see a road paved to go and proclaim that he has risen, he has ascended and he is above every throne. We cast down our idols today. We cast down all the things that we cling to and we run before the throne of Jesus and we realize what he's done for us and we pray for his peace and his power 
to replace whatever counterfeits of the world we've clung to. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this awesome opportunity to be in your house today, to find the courage that this world tries to take away from us, to find the peace this world cannot give us, to find the hope that this world tries to take away. Thank you for Jesus, the ascended King, the ruling ancient of days. Thank you for the promise of salvation. He intercedes for us and we receive from him the power of God, the hope of God, the life of heaven. Lord, rally us around this table today that we might receive from you revival and renewal and that we might be raised up and sent out. We might rise up and go to a world that needs to hear about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has killed the beasts and freed us from slavery and has given us a life that we cannot find elsewhere. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.